0: Starting to get a bit dizzy from the polar coaster or nauseated from watching the 2024 Republican primary? Good news. You've got something better to do. Join the Vote Save America community for all the tools you need to take action in this presidential election cycle, from volunteer opportunities to making sure you're registered to vote. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash nooffyears. America Dissected is brought to you by the Beaumont Foundation. From clean water to food safety standards to pandemic preparedness, public health saved your life today. At the DeBaumont Foundation, they create practical solutions that improve the health of communities across the country, enabling everyone to achieve their best possible health. To learn more about how advancing policy, creating partnerships, strengthening public health, and improving communication can make a difference, visit debomont.org. New data shows abortions have increased since the fall of Roe v. Wade. COVID cases are steadily climbing as temperatures drop. Global measles deaths are up 43%. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul-Al-Sayed. As I read this, my throat is sore. I've been dealing with the same virus for seems like months now sore throat, the sniffles, a cough that gets particularly bad at night. It's a hazard of having two kids in daycare or elementary school. They're like walking niduses for disease. They spend all day up on the other walking niduses they go to school with, only to come home and sneeze in my face. They bounce back within a few days. But me? No. I'm lucky to get a reprieve at all before the next one. That's the story for millions of households across the country right now. Because, let's face it, it's cold and flu season. Try as you might, you're probably going to come down with something. For healthier folks, the annoyance of a cough or sneezing, runny nose, or a sore throat is bad enough, but for infants, seniors, or people with immune deficiencies, it can mean the difference between life and death. What makes that so frustrating, though, is that it doesn't have to be. For all the valorizing we do about the good old days, they just weren't that good. People routinely died of diseases we've learned to control. We've had shots for COVID for almost four years now, we've had shots for the flu for more than half a century, and as of this year, we've got shots for RSV for seniors. But people just aren't taking them. COVID vaccine uptake is in the single digits. Flu vaccine coverage is lagging behind last year's. People just aren't getting their vaccines. What the F? We literally just lived through a pandemic that took 1.1 million lives. People are well aware of how important vaccines are, but somehow the myths and disinformers, they're winning. Make it make sense. Look, if I don't say this again for the rest of this episode, get yourself vaccinated. But part of the problem is how hard it's become to get your vaccines in the first place, even if you want to take them. We should be putting these any and everywhere. Instead, particularly to get vaccines for kids, you've got to wait months. And all of this is the consequence of a set of policy choices our federal government made. Rather than making them readily available everywhere, our government biased the profits of corporations that manufacture these vaccines, even though you and I, the American taxpayer, paid for the R&D for them. This policy, called, quote, commercialization, has been a complete and utter failure. But that's not the only policy failure when it comes to protecting ourselves from preventable infectious diseases. The other is that we failed to take air quality seriously. Think about it. The pandemic taught us anything. It's that keeping our air pure should be the absolute number one priority when it comes to preventing infectious diseases. Lockdowns, masks, all the things we did in the first moments of the pandemic, they were about keeping people from breathing air into which someone else had breathed COVID just a few moments earlier. That simple. But there are more efficient ways to do that. Requiring air purification and ventilation standards in buildings where people congregate, whether workplaces or perhaps, more importantly, schools and daycares, that should be the priority. Those kinds of standards are probably even more important than vaccination campaigns because they embody the best of what public health has to offer. They're passive, altering the nature of the environment in which we operate, protecting us from disease without requiring us to do a thing about it. In my home, we're purified up. We've got air purifiers in every single bedroom and in the rooms where we congregate. It was an investment, sure, but one that I think is well worth it. The other benefit? Air purification and ventilation is way, way less controversial. Who doesn't want to breathe cleaner air after all? But unfortunately, there just hasn't been much effort to make that happen. You'd think that state and federal leaders would be clamoring to make these kinds of requirements, to provide funding for retrofit. Aside from pandemic-era funds for schools, this hasn't been a priority. So here we are facing another season of COVID, flu, RSV, and the annoying myriad of viruses that cause us colds every year. So to help me think more about what we can do to protect ourselves, I wanted to reach back out to a friend of the pod and a fellow epidemiologist. Dr. Caitlin Jettelina is a professor at the Texas Health Sciences Center and author of the Substack newsletter, Your Local Epidemiologist. She joined me to talk about why, nearly four years in, our society still isn't doing the basic things right, and what all of us can do to protect our families. Here's my conversation with
1: Dr. Caitlin Jettelina. Okay. Can you introduce yourself here for the tape? Yeah. Hi
2: everyone. My name is Caitlin Jetalina. I'm an epidemiologist and author of Your Local Epidemiologist.
1: I was gonna say, uh, Caitlin, you're our local epidemiologist. Okay, like you're all of our <laughs> local epidemiologists. Um I uh I'm grateful to have a conversation with with my local epidemiologist uh as another local epidemiologist. And um, you know, we're talking right now because we're in this sort of weird moment in, you know, the Pandemic slash uh, infodemic slash um, multidemic of uh, the winter, and you know, I think I think for a lot of folks, the experience of COVID has given technical language to the thing that we have been experiencing for the winter for a very long time. Frankly, ever since um, the early nineteen hundreds, when the flu came roaring through, and then all of the you know other you name the diseases that that we tend to get because of human behavior when it gets cold outside and people like to come together. And, um, you know, the ones that we're going to talk about specifically today are COVID, flu, RSV, uh, and then the common cold. But it is, um, you know, it is something for us to be thinking about in the context of a uh, COVID pandemic that that hasn't really ended and um, a set of dynamics that have been amplified and changed because of it. So I want to step, start very local for you. How is your family faring in this moment of the holiday sniffles, sickness, you know, feel like crap?
2: Yeah, so I have two toddlers, a four-year-old and a three-year-old. And um, hopefully you don't hear them in the background because they are home right now with fevers. I mean, we had a lot of people get sick uh, during Thanksgiving, unfortunately. Um, And we've been testing covid it's not COVID, so I'm thinking the flu or some other kind of crap that's out there right now that's circulating like you just highlighted. I don't know who was patient zero as an epidemiologist, I want to uncover that, but you know, I, I don't think it it one really matters. Um, my kids go to daycare. There's a lot of stuff circulating at daycare. Cousins go to school. My husband was traveling for work. I mean, it, it could have been anywhere.
0: Yeah, I got to tell you, so in our family, my uh, infant daughter was uh, feverish and sick all last week. We think she got it from my older daughter, but it's unclear because she goes to daycare. My daughter's in kindergarten. I, it took me a month to get over some cold-like uh, post-viral um, thing. And you know, I think a lot of us are just sort of feeling uh, that way this year. And then there are, you know, the, the more serious illnesses—the flus, the the COVIDs, the RSVs—sort of zooming out from, you know, our local epidemiology experience uh, to a, a a broader experience. What are the numbers telling us about this season, writ large?
2: Yeah. So this was actually a really big question, as you know, we had among epidemiologists was like, how is this winter going to play out? Because we've not really. Seen, I mean, last winter was the first time we had all three viruses back. It was a really weird year. So we were kind of waiting to see how things unfolded. Um, right now, today, we are at above epidemic levels, which means that we are seeing a lot of viruses circulating that we typically see during flu um, and fall and winter respiratory season. Um, and all three of the big viruses, right? Flu, RSV, COVID—they're all increasing exponentially. Uh, RSV is really taking the cake right now, um, but flu is quickly falling behind, as well as COVID. Um, I think the biggest concern on a population level is what that means for our healthcare systems. Um, if all three of them are surging at the same time, can our healthcare systems take that? They didn't really take it well last year. Um, and we're not building capacity. Um, in fact, I would argue we have even more uh, lower capacity because of burnout and people leaving the job. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I was taught during the pandemic that I shouldn't make predictions, but um, we'll see how things continue to weather uh, in the next coming months.
0: Yeah, and 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 I think you're really circling around the key point here, which is to say that we know we're headed into a time of year that is notoriously bad for the spread of these illnesses. We know that there is the consequence that these illnesses have for our healthcare system's capacity to take you know, all three hits at the same time. And then we know that these three diseases are deadly and they're extremely serious. And the fourth thing we know is that there are things that we can do to protect ourselves. And unfortunately, when it comes to those things, We're kind of not doing a great job of it. This has been an abysmally bad vaccine season. Why do you think that is?
2: Yeah, it is. It's actually um, really, really bad. Uh, There's a couple of reasons. I mean, one, we're seeing abysmal rates of uptake around COVID-19. Many reasons for that. People are just tired about hearing about it. Um, And then two, there's a lot of misinformation out there still. And then three, there's a whole nother layer of complexity with COVID vaccines this year because now they're privatized. So access, cost, education, outreach, all of those have been um, taken back. And I think we're starting to see that in the numbers, particularly around vaccine disparities. Um, Flu vaccine is lower than normal, but I'm hoping that catches up soon. Um, RSV vaccines for those over 60 is also just abysmally low. I think it was like 9% uptake among those over 60. And I think that is because of what we're also seeing with COVID that there's just a newfound hesitancy around new vaccines, um, as well as just education and outreach. It's Public Health 101 that um, our funding is getting taken away. And so we're going to continue to see that in uptake numbers.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Margaret Casey Foundation. Once a month, the MCF Book Club shares the ideas of leaders who encourage us to imagine how we can radically transform our democracy, economy, and society. Now, the Margaret Casey Foundation is partnering with Nationswell to roll out a series of in-person MCF Book Clubs in 2024. To learn more about MCF Book Club, reading for a liberated future, and stay tuned for future event announcements, visit them at caseygrants.org book club. America Dissected is brought to you by bookshop.org. Whether you're searching for the perfect gift for a loved one, a novel that sweeps you away from the chaos of this time of year, or an incisive history that helps you make sense of this moment, Bookshop.org has just the book you're looking for. When you purchase from Bookshop.org, you're supporting local independent bookstores, so they'll be around for all of us to enjoy in the future. Bookshop.org has raised over $28 million for local bookstores because local bookstores are essential community hubs that foster culture, curiosity, and a love of reading. Bookshop.org is committed to helping local bookstores survive and thrive, and they're unapologetically anti-Amazon. Bookshop.org is truly for everyone who loves to read and knows the power of a good book. Use code AD to get 10% off your next book at bookshop.org slash crooked. That's code AD to get 10% off at bookshop.org slash crooked. I want to drill in on um, a couple of these, these points that you made. And one gets the notion that um, they're separate. But but they, they do interact with each other. But it is worth sort of thinking about how they operate independently for a moment. You know, when it comes to COVID, I think the operating hypothesis many of us who do this work would have had would have been that after a deadly long pandemic moment, three years during which we really suffered and almost everybody knows somebody who passed, that rather than... Walk away from this thing and pretending like it never happened, we would be thinking about how to protect ourselves moving forward. But that's just actually quite the opposite. We have this like impressive ability to want to shed the past and pretend like it actually didn't happen to us. You've done some uh, writing about this this idea of of pandemic revisionism. And I do think, you know, certainly the misinformation around COVID and the vaccines in particular have something to do with it, but also tells us something pretty profound about human nature when it comes to risks that we face. Can you t- tell us why you think um, there is this sort of willingness to almost ostrich about what we experienced over the last three years and this notion that somehow if you don't acknowledge it, you don't do the things around it, that somehow you can kind of get past it, even though you know the numbers are telling us that's just decidedly not the case? Yeah,
2: I think that's one of the most... Um sobering things is you know after losing 1.1 million Americans to COVID-19, we're kind of leaving it in the background. We have abysmal vaccine rates compared to, for example, the UK, which is like 68% vaccinated at this point. I think that um I mean I, I talked a long time with a psychologist in San Francisco about this because I was so curious about that what we are seeing unfold in real time, this idea of revisionism. And there's actually a lot of psychology that goes behind it. Um, Part of it is survival bias that, hey, we survived. It actually, maybe because we survived, it maybe isn't as bad as I thought. And so we can kind of continue going forward. And that's not the case um, because we already lost a lot of people. Um, Our experiences and our biases very much craft our memory. and. We'll continue to see that play out in a lot of different public health emergencies. We see that with mass shootings as well, that it didn't impact me. So it's okay, we'll just keep going forward. It's um it's really hard. You know, I think also there's this there's a study that came out a few weeks ago. You might have seen it, Abdul, but it was about um how those that were most stressed about the pandemic now remember the pandemic in worse terms than those that were not stressed during the pandemic. And now they think it in better terms. And so it's it's very much not data in, data out. Our biases certainly craft how we remember and how we view things going forward.
0: Yeah. I mean, and in, in, in you see it in the, in the duality of the response. Obviously, we count yeses or nos on things like vaccines. But oftentimes, th- there is a almost extreme response to whether or not you believe that COVID is still a risk or it's not. And there is a notion that because COVID is still about, the numbers are increasing, that we're like right back to the worst of the Omicron surge, which is which is not the case, like d- decidedly not the case. And on the other side of it, like you said, there is this revisionism about whether or not COVID was ever real in the first place, like whether or not there was was actually a thing. Um and it's it's impressive because the only way you can interpret that is that people are assessing their sense of what happened through the lens of their emotions about about how they felt about it while it happened right and and that's what this this study is suggesting but it also you know it also has real implications for behavior and our ability to to make common sense about an experience that we uh, went through, and then what we do about it moving forward, and that—that that really, to me, is is the bigger risk, because it's not just that individuals out there are choosing not to take their COVID vaccine; it's that that the federal government, uh, responsible for ushering in those vaccines in the first place, took a real gamble on whether or not, for the sake of enabling the corporations that have profiteered off of that government investment whether or not it was worth fully commercializing them and uh, interrupting the supply lines that we had spent years creating to make sure every single person could get them. And, you know, in my day job, I run a municipal health department. And we've had to think about how do we vaccinate um, incarcerated people, right? How do we uh, advise the public about where to go? Because if you're insured um, in our county, you, you, you can't come to our health department and get a COVID vaccine. You can get a flu shot, but you can't get a COVID vaccine. Which just makes for some like really interrupted um, messaging, right? Uh, if you're of this particular um, uh, insurance status, you can go here. And if not, you should go here. And at some point, people are like, okay, that just sounds real confusing. And I, you know, I, I, maybe, maybe I'll think about this later. Um, and we all know that the more complicated you make a message, the lower the probability people are to follow it. And to me, I see this as a, a pretty serious abrogation of responsibility on the part of the federal government. You mentioned this um among the causes, how big of an issue is the disjunct uh covid supply chain as a function of the commercialization of the vaccines
2: oh it it's it's terrible i mean it's it's terrible it's a it's our pre pandemic fragmented healthcare and public health system um and that was Wide open during the pandemic. Um, and we saw this through disparities. We saw this through access. And um, I think a lot of it was ironed out um, because of the one purchaser kind of model we created during the emergency, but we're back to normal. Um, and actually, just this morning, right before this um, recording, I was analyzing some data in California and on a hyper local level on whether disparities are widening because we are back in this privatized model and it looks like it is. Um, So that means that there's a lot of people um, hurting, that there's going to be these um, disparities that are always going to be there until we make huge systemic changes. Um, And I hoped optimistically that an entire pandemic, more than one million people dead, would actually drive that change, and maybe it is slowly inching towards that, a change somewhere, but it's just something um, I've been disappointed to see.
0: Yeah, you and me both. And, and you look at the, the reason why, the only plausible reason why is so that the corporations that manufacture these vaccines, the research for which was paid for by the federal government, can make more money by charging more. And the upshot of all this is that there are so few shots in arms, that they're just not making the same amount of money because, because there's just not that many people taking them. Um, and so, yes, their the, the per unit cost is higher and their per unit profit, in theory, should be higher. But if you're not getting shots in arms, you're not selling your product. And I just think it, it, it demonstrates the way that our healthcare system shoots itself in the foot over this notion that a public good ought to be profitable in order to be publicly available. And it is uh, such an indictment on, I think, everything we've learned uh, and everything we are yet to still learning, uh, because the lesson clearly hasn't stuck. And then the last point here is just the misinformation ecosystem uh, in which a lot of these decisions are being made. You know, on the one hand, obviously, the misinformers that went into hyperdrive during the pandemic have not stopped. They've somewhat moved on, right? They've like transmogrified the grift elsewhere. Um, but it has not stopped focusing on COVID. Um, I want to ask you, you know, what do you think, as someone who spends a lot of your time communicating to the public about this, what do you think it'll take um, to insulate people's minds from the impact of this persistent misinformation? Or are we just doomed? Like at this point, is this is this is sort of baked in stone?
2: No, I don't think we're doom and gloomed. Um, and I've actually been thinking about this a lot the past couple months of what does this look like? Um, I think one is that, yeah, we can focus on misinformation and, and sometimes there is a role in surveillance of misinformation, for example. It's always going to be a game of whack-a-mole though. And so I think uh, as as well as surveilling and combating misinformation on the ground, you also need to uh, build trust and do proactive communication, particularly from again, trust and messengers. Whether that's your health department, the the challenge though with public health is how do we increase capacity with very little funding, um, and where does something like this live? Maybe scientific communication, proactive communication isn't doesn't belong in the federal government because you're going to lose half the people in the United States because they're not going to trust that information. And so to me, the biggest question is how do we equip trust messengers? How do we get them um, information as well as how do we listen to communities? How do we uh, be responsive to the needs they're faced with today rather than what we think that they're interested in um, and creating that bi-directional relationship with communities? And so I think that um, all of this is going to take a ridiculous amount of time. But I think it starts out with uh, reimagining public health for the twenty first century, that we can't use our old nineteenth century public health tools in fighting this new information landscape, and we need to be a whole lot smarter with it and uh, even leverage technology on um, how to how to be better at it as well.
0: I really appreciate that. and I, I think part of that is also rethinking our messaging. I you know one of the things I get real frustrated about is, because we tend to think empirically, because that's the nature of public health training, we assume other people think empirically. And I think one of the numbers that we tend to lead with is that death number. And given what we talked about earlier about that survival bias, I think people almost come away, they'll never say this, but they come away with this almost sense of invincibility that like, I'm not going to die of one of these diseases. That's, that's nuts. And look, I already lived through a, a pandemic for three years. Like, this isn't this flu is not going to get me. And I think we lead with the wrong statistic because most people don't have an experience. Well, everyone by definition who's alive has no experience of dying, right? And most people don't have a clear experience of having had a infectious disease that almost killed them or a loved one, right? It's not something that they saw uh, in their faces. And I think the thing that we probably should lead with is is more like, hey, you probably just don't want to get the sniffles. Like you don't, you don't want to have a fever for three days. You don't it's really want to be, yeah, you don't want to yeah. miss days of work or your kid's missing days of school, this is a way to fix that. And I I think sometimes we think like, all right, lead with the most extreme and then you're going to get people to pay attention. And the problem with that is that the extreme sounds so extreme and people don't have an emotional analog for it that they dismiss it out of hand. And I think we ought to be better about having just, just simple conversations about experiences that people have had for sure. Everybody who's alive has had this experience of having a fever or a really bad cough or whatever right and 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 leading with that um you talk about this idea of of passive positives which i really like which is it kind of highlights the gap between the number of people who would get vaccinated if there was a little nudge um from a healthcare provider or you know public health messaging but but end up not getting it because we're so focused on these like big you know the 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 clash of of misinformation and truth right um i want to ask you like as you think about what actually is going to encourage people to get a flu shot, um, to, to like really do this basic thing of getting a COVID shot, if you're over 60, getting an RSV shot, what is, what is the right interaction, whether it's with a, a healthcare provider, um, as many of our listeners are, or um, with a loved one, right? Who, uh, you know, who just cares about somebody in their life. What does that interaction look like? And how can we, in our own communication, take advantage of this idea of passive positives?
2: Yeah, so passive positives is another lesson I learned from a fellow psychologist. Um, you know, I don't think we leveraged uh behavioral science as much as we could during the pandemic. Like we leveraged lab science. Um but yeah, so passive positives, I estimate is like thirty-five percent of the population. So it's a big chunk of people, big chunk of Americans. And just um, Caitlin, if you are, can
0: if you can just define that term just so, so folks know exactly yeah, what. You're talking
2: about. Yeah, these are people that are um, generally positive around vaccination, right? They got the first one, two, three, four COVID-19 vaccines, but um, didn't get their fall vaccine last year, haven't gotten their fall vaccine this year. Um, and the reason because of that is maybe they just want to tune out COVID all together are just tired, or they don't know they're eligible, or it's really hard for them to get the vaccine. Um, and so to me, I think public health needs to be, and the healthcare providers need to be laser focused on passive positives. These are the low hanging fruit to get vaccinated. Um, and so I, I mean bottom line, we just need to make it as easy as freaking possible for them to get their vaccine. I went and got my um COVID and flu vaccine at Costco um a few weeks ago. And uh while I had to make an appointment, I showed up, um, waited five minutes, got both vaccines, great. I continued shopping, but when I was waiting, you know, in that five minutes after you get your vaccine just to make sure you're good. There were, I counted eight older adults, probably over the age of 80 that came by the booth and was like, hey, I would like to get my COVID shot. And they were told they have to wait an hour and a half and they just kept walking. And it killed me. Awful! It killed me. Um, and so, and I don't, you know, that's not the, I don't know, it, I don't think it's the fault of the Costco employee. In fact, the Costco employee was doing amazing answering their questions. I was so proud of her on her answers it's, it's just that, that how, how do, how, what are the processes and we can make that better for them. Um, and so a lot about what passive positives is, is once they decide right then that they want a vaccine, they're able to get the vaccine right then. Um, and so what that means, talking to your grandma about a vaccine, you drive them to CVS to go get it, Um Or if you're a healthcare provider, you have the vaccines available right there um, for your patients uh, at the same time. I mean, my kids, my girls don't have their COVID-19 vaccine this fall. It's seven, the closest one to me is 75 miles away. I mean, it's just, it, access is abysmal and we can't expect people, especially passive positives to get it if it's that challenging to get.
0: America Dissected is brought to you by Article. Article believes in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online only model, they have some really delightful prices too. Their curated assortment of mid century modern, coastal, industrial, and, well, Scandian boho designs make furniture shopping simple. Their team of designers are all about finding the perfect balance between style, quality, and price. They're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and looks good doing it. Article offers fast, affordable shipping across the US and Canada. Plus, they won't leave you waiting around. You pick the delivery date, and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Article's knowledgeable customer care team is there when you need them to make sure your experience is smooth and stress-free. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com ad, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com ad for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. News headlines these days are full of wild stories. The rise of authoritarianism, the climate crisis, and the list goes on it's a lot to take in. But what if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we were actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I recommend What Could Go Right, the acclaimed news podcast offering a weekly dose of optimistic ideas. Each week on What Could Go Right, the Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas discuss the central issues of our era and make the case for progress over pessimism with expert guests like NPR anchor Steve Inskeep and prolific writer and historian Rebecca Solnit. Listen to What Could Go Right every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. What you're speaking to is is ultimately a lack of investment, right? It, it's you know it's not necessarily Costco's um, fault as much as it is we have not invested in getting these vaccines at the point of contact and incentivizing uh, shots in arms in the way that we ought to, in the way that we know uh, can save a lot of lives and prevent a lot of illness, and 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 that. That problem, right, is that we've like hook, line, and sinker bought this idea that it's like a commercial product like any other, right? If you, you know, go by the store and decide that you want to buy that bag, like, okay, buy that bag. But if you don't buy that bag, oh, good, right? It's just not how vaccines work. Like, there is a incentive to get them in arms, uh, and we don't do a very good job um, promoting them and making it easy uh, to take down the transaction cost that, um, unfortunately, has been such a barrier. And, you know, to the to the earlier point, we've made that transaction cost far worse. Right. And, and, and you know, you obviously very, very few people could be pro, more pro vaccine than you or I. But I'm in the same boat. It's like really hard. To, like we, we had to make a whole appointment for both of our kids to get their shots. And those appointments are like in a month. And I'm like, y'all, like we're missing the boat here. Like you should be reaching out to us and saying, hey, have you yeah. scheduled your uh, your vaccination appointment, um, uh, rather than us reaching out, realizing that we're not gonna be able to get an appointment, uh, for a certain period of time. And then, um, and, you know, and then waiting. And so like, we've like same situation we've looked and looked and looked in particular for our infant. Um, it is very, very difficult to find a place to go. And so at this point we're like, okay, well, I guess we have an appointment scheduled and like you and I are both people who do this for a living. Um, Yeah. and it, it ends up being like, you know, so it it should not be this difficult, and I I highly doubt that um you know the average person has the time, uh, energy or or knowledge of the system to be able to game it the way that unfortunately you know folks who really are motivated um, have had to.
2: They don't. They don't, and we see that in the numbers, right? And I think that you know I had this fascinating conversation with this epidemiologist in the UK um, the other week, um, because she was wondering if the government provides reimbursement to pharmacies like CVS or Walgreens who administer the vaccine. Um, And I told her, you know, this is a, it's a very complicated question actually, but typically no, that they're paid through health insurance. And she was like, okay, so then say a vaccine is recommended, do people with private health insurance then get invited by their doctor or pharmacy to go get that vaccine? I was like, no, you have to go proactively find it. Um, and she's like, well, doesn't that mean a lot of people don't do it then? I'm like, yeah. I mean, this is the whole problem compared to national health systems like in the UK. It's it's really frustrating to watch.
0: Yeah. Um, and And in that system, right, the whole of government is incentivized to get you vaccinated because that's fewer people who are going to be in the hospitals. Unfortunately, in our system, like just to be clear and this is, I'm not saying that there's uh, there's any sort of effort um, to do this, but in our system, the moments that money is made is when people consume healthcare. There's a lot more money to be made when people get sick than there is on offering a vaccine. And, you know, it, when you just incentivize based on, uh, on medical care provided, you end up getting these really, really perverse emergent outcomes, right? Where yeah, there's just not that much effort put, being put into getting shots in arms because there's just not that much money to be made. And um and it it really should force us to step back and ask like how come we don't do these very basic things well? And a lot of that ends up coming back to like how money moves in our system or doesn't move. Um I want to ask us right cuz one of the most important things that we could be doing that we're really just failing at is addressing one of the central features of our lift space that we just take for granted, which is you're inside right now. I'm inside right now. Both of us are breathing air. Uh, and that air um, is a big reason why when someone has COVID, uh, other people around them get COVID. And we don't do as much um, to purify that air, particularly in crowded spaces, think schools or shopping malls uh, or workplaces as, as we should. And That's a matter of public policy. There are choices that we could make about how we certify indoor spaces, about what kind of HVAC we require and what kind of purification we require in these spaces that that there hasn't really been much movement on. How do you think about um, indoor air purification and what's needed now um, so that we're ready for the next time we end up having a very, very serious uh, aerosolized uh, virus that's causing um, hundreds of thousands of people to die?
2: Yeah. You know, um, air filtration and ventilation is one of the most powerful public health tools we have uh, because it works in the background. People, the individual doesn't necessarily need to do anything. Um, it, it's working in, invisibly. Um, what it does require is kind of what you're going getting at is institutional level action. And that institutional level action is just something we haven't seen yet. Um, and. For example, um, schools were given funding to upgrade their air and ventilation systems, and only fifty five zero percent of schools actually did it. Um, the money is still there; it's still available for schools to use. It's just not being done. Um, and you know, I, I don't know. I don't know why that is, but I do know that. Uh, this doesn't just need to happen because of pandemics. I mean, it ha- that would help with flu. It would help with other coronaviruses. It would help with RSV. It would help with uh, climate-related things that we're seeing. For example, um, uh, the smoke uh, that we saw in the Northeast last summer. Um, upgrading AC would also... Help keep kids in schools. Um, for example, in DC, when all the schools were closed because of the heat wave. Uh, and so I think that there's, and then there's just these, what is it, uh, chronic healthy uh, building syndrome, cr- chronic building syndrome, where you just feel like crap too sometimes when you're just breathing the same stuff. And we can actually be a whole lot more productive if we start cleaning our air. So I don't know. I think that the pandemic did uh renew a sense of conversation around this i will say this is the most i've ever really kind of seen it been talked about i there i know though that there's a lot more that needs to be done um pretty quickly i think uh so we can be living our healthiest life
0: yeah i really appreciate your point i mean this is the, this is the thing about it is that public health is best when we're invested in institutional structural level change rather than Individual level change. I think one of the unfortunate uh, consequences of the pandemic is that it was the first time a lot of folks were introduced to public health and they were introduced to us in the most individualized way. We're the folks telling you that you should get your vaccine or you should wear your mask. And that's just unfortunately not what public health is at its best. I think it's what we've allowed public health to become because in so many ways we've sterilized ourselves from taking on power. But it is not where we operate um, most effectively, and I think in in that respect, there's a lot of opportunity. I think we have to engage with um, partners in in different industries, commercial real estate, um, and then certainly legislative partners to try and uh, up the ante on what should be expected when you step into a building. And the consequences are not just uh, COVID, right? The consequences are any um, respiratory illness, and then. Uh, you know, any um, air quality related illness. And given what we're seeing with climate change, as you talked about uh, in the bad air days that, that, that we're increasingly experiencing, this ought to be something that um, we're making a, a full steam invested in. And, you know, a lot of um, economists who study this, and we've had a couple on the show, talk about this moment, um, not just being about climate change mitigation, but about adaptation. And that means how are we changing the way we live vis-a-vis the reality of climate change uh, is going to bear down upon us. As we um, step out, right, a lot of the other things that that we can do to protect ourselves using uh, testing, which is, again, now freely available uh, through the federal government, uh, and masking, uh, you're seeing a lot less use of these, um, but they remain very effective. Um, I think part of that, of course, is, is the conversation that we shared about, you know, our, our instinct to run away from a bad experience that we've had and to pretend like it never happened. But part of that also is that I think there's there's sort of a, a peer pressure effect. um how are you thinking about this moment when it comes to masks when you think when, or when it comes to um testing around large indoor gatherings, et cetera?
2: yeah, I mean mask it, that is one right one topic that just gets people's blood boiling in the United States, which is I think unfortunate it It shows how much these became symbols of tribalism rather than. Tools of protection, and um, yeah, I mean it's very we're very social animals, and so it's it's peer pressure and social pressure is a very big thing. Um, I mean, I feel awkward. I'll be honest, wearing a mask at the airport. Um, I don't know if I necessarily care, but I I do feel that, Um, and so I I guess I I I'm not surprised that so many other people feel that. Uh, I will say though, I just traveling over Thanksgiving, I was really happy to see many of those over 60 were wearing a mask and actually like a good mask in N95. So I think we did make progress there. We, we wouldn't have seen that pre pandemic. Um, that's for sure. Uh, and masks work, they ma- work on an individual level. I mean, that's a physics question, um, that we cannot deny. Testing is interesting. And I, even I have, mixed feelings, at least now on asymptomatic testing, um, because it's so, there's so many false negatives at the beginning of illnesses that given the cost for a family of four and doing cadence testing every other day, I mean, it, that adds up. And so, um, But what tests are very good at is telling us when we're not infectious anymore. So once you get that positive, when that positive turns negative, that's a very good tool to say, hey, I'm not infectious anymore. I can go see great grandma at the nursing home, for example. So I don't know. I mean, these are all tools. You and I have been talking about these tools nonstop for the past three and a half years. I think that Um, one again is access and how do people access these tools, um, given their high expense. Another one is Paxlovid becoming $1,400 now that it's privatized. I mean, it's just, we're shooting ourselves in the foot and it's, it's hard to watch given all we've been through these past couple of years.
0: And this, this is the, (laughs) like, this is where the rubber really hits the road. A lot of my, um, public health colleagues like to talk about public health and medicine as being these like two separate things. And, you know, at the end of the day, money is fungible, as all all the crypto bros like to say. Um, And the choice that we make in this country to spend 19 to 20% of our whole GDP, like every dollar spent in America on healthcare, implies that we're squeezing out on the back end what we could spend in public health. And then when you think about so many of these public health implements being uh, juxtaposed to the same mechanisms uh, and market incentives as all the rest of healthcare, it starts to explain a lot of the choices that may are made or, or not made. And you know mm-hmm. whether or not a test, which is a market product when it's not subsidized by the federal government, is available to you um, and you can use it to make good decisions about protecting yourself and the family— Right, that that is a that becomes an economic question pretty quick, um, and uh, and certainly when you like when you get sick, and need the treatment to 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 um, to heal, and it's fourteen hundred bucks, right? And, and and you you may or may not know where to get it, like that. That is a real challenge. So, um, these things collide, whether we want to pretend like they're the same or they're not the same. And in some respects, like we're all going to have to deal with the fact that the fundamental goal of the public health system is to keep people out of the healthcare system. And when you have a healthcare system that makes money, when people go into it, you set up a uh, a really challenging macroeconomic incentive set, and um, and we got to deal with with both sides of it. And you know, we really appreciate you being on the right side of it, Dr. Jetalina. We appreciate reading your work, and um, we're grateful for you joining us. Our guest today uh, was Dr. Caitlin Jetalina. She is an epidemiologist and professor at the University of Texas Health Science Center, uh, and she is the author of the fantastic Substack, "Your Local Epidemiologist." I highly recommend it. Uh, Caitlin, thank you so much for taking the
1: time. Yeah,
2: thank you for having
1: me.
2: As
0: usual, here's what I'm watching right now. When anti abortion extremists engineered the final end of Roe v. Wade, I doubt they expected this abortions have increased since the fall of Roe v. Wade and the restrictions on abortion rights in 21 states across the country that followed. To be sure, In those states that have banned abortion after six weeks, there were 115,000 fewer abortions. That includes nearly 37,000 fewer in Texas, 20,000 fewer in Georgia, and 13,000 fewer in Tennessee. But they were more than made up for in states where abortions remain legal. Illinois alone saw an additional 21,000 abortions. Why? Think about where Illinois sits. It borders Indiana, Missouri, and Kentucky, all states that banned abortions. And that should explain in part what's going on people are traveling across state lines to get abortions. And because the option isn't readily available in their home states, they're not taking chances. The other explanation is the increase in medication abortion. Already, more than half of all legal abortions are medication abortions, a form of abortion that is far harder to regulate. But that doesn't mean that anti-abortion extremists aren't gonna try. A Trump-appointed district court judge in Texas tried to make Mifepristone, an extremely safe, effective abortion medication cleared by the FDA back in the 1990s, illegal. And even the Supreme Court stayed the ruling, sending it back to an appeals court that tried to keep it legal, but vastly limited its use by restricting how it could be prescribed and transported. Given the fact that the fall of Roe has already backfired, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw yet more backhanded effort to limit abortion access. We'll be watching this space. COVID cases, test positivity, hospitalizations, they're all up. And the impact of the Thanksgiving holiday, where a large proportion of the country gathered indoors with loved ones, won't really be clear until next week. All of this reminds us that as much as the pandemic phase may be behind us, COVID is not yet over, as we just discussed with Dr. Jedalina, And the limited number and availability of vaccines isn't helping. In case you're wondering, we did finally get our kids vaccinated. If you're still waiting, it shouldn't be this hard to get vaccinated, but please do make the effort. In other vaccination news, global measles deaths have skyrocketed, up 43% year-on-year in 2022. That's driven by about 33 million missed vaccines in 2021 alone. And more than half of those are accounted for by just 10 countries, including India, Pakistan, Ethiopia, and Nigeria. Let me just say this. Measles should no longer be a death sentence for any child. It is a vaccine-preventable disease that we've long had the capacity to stop. But we just don't. And that's for two reasons. First, the pandemic had a displacement effect that we've talked a lot about. Whether it's kids who weren't vaccinated for measles in Nigeria or pregnant folks who weren't screened for syphilis here in the U.S., as we talked about a couple weeks ago. During the pandemic, limited public health resources were rightly focused on stopping COVID, but that meant that other critical public health interventions were missed. But look, the point isn't that we shouldn't have tried to stop COVID. It's that we should have invested more in public health to be able to do both. Friends, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. The second issue, though, is in part what Caitlin and I discussed today, the role that myths and disinformation has had in the aftermath of COVID. That myths and disinformation has shaken trust in vaccines, and not just COVID vaccines, but all vaccines even the ones for diseases we've been vaccinating against for decades now. That's meant that millions of kids who otherwise would have been vaccinated are not. And now nearly 40,000 more kids died of a vaccine-preventable disease in 2022 than the year prior. That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review. It really does go a long way. Also, if you love the show and want to wrap us, drop by the Crooked store for some America-Dissected merch. Don't forget to follow us at Crooked Media and me at Abdul Al-Sayed on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emilik Frank. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takar Sazawa and Alex Ugiera. Our executive producers are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, and me, Dr. Abdul al sayed your host. Thanks for listening. This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily present the views and opinions of Wayne County, Michigan, or its Department of Health, Human, and Veteran Services.